Last week we began this series, The Prince of Peace. And we started the series by, dis- by covering the most famous piece of music ever written. That's Handel's Messiah. And Handel's Messiah takes a lot of Isaiah chapter 9. So I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, we have Bibles in the pew in front of you. And that page is going to be 683. <laughs> I want to strongly encourage you to have a Bible this morning. And here's why I always want to encourage you to have your copy of God's Word or pull the Bible from the pew in front of you. I don't want you to ever take anything at my word. Because, believe it or not, I am not perfect. I know that's a shock for some of you this morning. I understand that. But I'm okay. But no, but here's the other reason. Is I want you to see God's Word for yourself. I want you to see Scripture come alive in your heart as it does in my heart when I read scripture. Last week we learned that God was so excited about this gift he was going to send on Christmas that he started telling people 700 years before it happened. Anticipation, we talked about that last week. The fact that God would take 700 years to keep sharing the same information that a child was coming to change the world, that a Savior would be born to redeem man. And so for 700 years, people were anticipating this. They were excited. They were looking forward to this. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. And I also want to encourage you to do something we did last week. In honor and tradition that takes place when you hear Handel's Messiah, I want to encourage you to stand with your copy of God's Word as we read verses 1 through 7 in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed in the land of Zebulon and the land of Nathal, Afterwards, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the, according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward and even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Father, as we enter to this time of worship, Father, remind us that not only do we need that wonderful counselor, but Father, we need a mighty God. Father, we need a mighty God who defends us, who goes before us, who prepares the way, and Father, who helps us when the enemy comes at all sides. 
So, Father, may that be the reminder this morning as we are gathered in this place for worship. Father, block out the distractions, block out the noise, and may our hearts' desires be focused on you and you alone. We pray this all in your Son's precious and holy name. And the church said, and you may be seated. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9 for just a few moments. In 700 B.C., the people of Israel were facing a hostile enemy from the east. Scripture says that the nation of Assyria was coming into the land and taking people, taking goods, taking whatever they wanted. To give you a little bit of a history lesson, you see it on the map behind me, Assyria is part of what we know today as Iraq. So those who know geography know kind of where we're talking But the Assyrians would go, and I don't have it on the map here, but they would go north and then come back down towards the other two nations that we just read about there in verses 1, Zebulon and Nathal. Remember, those are the two northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel that has been divided. We have a divided kingdom when we get to this part of Scripture. So the Assyrians had an easy target. The Assyrians had someone they could pick on, someone who they could come into their land, come into their borders, and literally terrorize them. And they were dealing with this enemy. So when God tells Isaiah to write these words, these aren't words just to say something. These are words to give them encouragement, give them hope, give them comfort, give them safety. We read here in verse 1 that there was gloom and there was distress. The nation was distressed because they were being, according to Scripture, heavily oppressed. We see this in the Word, but we know why this is happening. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, the people walked in darkness. They had turned their backs on God. They had turned their backs on the things of God. So God has to come along and say, guess what? There's going to be relief. There's going to be joy. Something is coming, something that you can't anticipate because I'm going to send you a child. Notice what Scripture doesn't say. God doesn't tell these two tribes, listen, I'm going to send you an army. I'm going to send you the strongest man I can find on the biggest horse with the biggest sword, and he's going to knock heads. No, God tells this nation, he tells us, and tells these people for 700 years, I'm sending a child. I'm sending a child to redeem you. I'm sending a child to deliver you. I'm sending a child who, according to Scripture, is going to be that wonderful counselor, that mighty God, that everlasting Father, that Prince of Peace. For our time this morning, I want to look at two words we see in verse 6. I want to look at that mighty God and who this mighty God is. And here's my prayer and here's my hope this morning. As you learn about this mighty God coming in the form of an infant, my prayer is that it changes your Christmas this year. That you see this baby in a whole different light because not only do you see this baby different but this could ultimately change your life of knowing who this baby is who this mighty God is because if you think about it this is really a paradox think about this God is going to send a baby to save his people not a warrior not an army he's going to send a child the most vulnerable of all human beings An infant, 
something that someone who can't feed himself, he can't change himself, he can't care for himself, he is dependent on others to help him. Yet this is what God chooses to send. And what is so exciting about reading this during the Christmas season is that this baby we read about in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is going to change the world. And it's going to change the world for the better. Because small things can come with limitless power. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a second. But before we get to this prophecy right here, let's go back a little bit. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and go over to Judges chapter 6. Again, if you're using a pulpit Bible, it's 238. But as you're turning there, let me tell you what's happening. There's a nation known as Midian, and they are coming, and they are constantly taking over the lower part of Israel. Midian is on the other side of the water, the other side of where the Dead Sea ends, and they're coming into the land, and they're taking it over, and they are a mighty army. Scripture tells us that they are massive. Scripture says they are so numerous you literally cannot count them, and I'll tell you what I'm talking about in just a second. But Israel had tried year after year after year to stop the Mennonites, but they couldn't do it. They could not humanly stop them. It was impossible because they were limited in size, they were limited in resources, and here they are facing an army of superior power. And here was the problem. They're trying to do everything under their power. Pop quiz. What happens when you take God out of the equation? Thank you. Nothing. Because apart from God, you can do nothing. So the nation is trying to take on this massive army apart from who God is. And they're trying everything on their own power. They're trying everything under their abilities. And yet they come to the point where they cry out to a holy God and say, send us a deliverer. Judges chapter 6. Look what takes place here. Because God is going to hear their prayer. Verse 6, verse 1, chapter 6 rather. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Think about this. For seven years, this nation terrorized God's children. Why? Because they had turned their back on God. They stopped following him. They stopped listening to him. They were morally and spiritually dead because they had stopped trusting and stopped believing and so they have to cry out to God so here is the setup look with me in verse 2 in the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites the children of Israel made themselves dens and caves and strongholds which are in the mountain so it was whenever Israel had sown the Mennonites would come up, so would the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them. They would destroy their produce of the earth as far as Gaza. Gaza, rather. Gaza. I'll get it right. And leave no substance for Israel. Look, they took the land. They took the sheep. They took their donkeys. They took everything. And they would come up with their livestock, verse 5, and their tents, verse 5. And they were as numerous as locusts. I don't know a lot about locusts. I know they're an ugly-looking bug that eats crops. 
But I've never, in all the pictures I've looked at, I've never seen a solo locust. I've never seen one locust go, man, look at that field. No, he's bringing a thousand of his friends with him. And a thousand of their friends are going to follow them. So scripture is describing this army as a massive sea of locusts. They're everywhere. They're consuming everything and they're destroying it according to scripture. And they came, it says in verse 5, and their camels were without number and they would enter the land and destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Mennonites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So for the purpose of time, I'm not going to read the whole story, but here's what happens. Israel cries out to God, so God appoints a deliverer. He appoints someone, the most unlikely person in the world. The last person anybody would have thought of, God says, you're it. He picks a man named Gideon, and look what he says. Jump down to verse 12 about Gideon. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Some translations word that as mighty warrior. God looks at Gideon and says, you're my man. Not only are you my man, but you are a mighty, mighty warrior. You're a mighty man of valor. And then Gideon looks at this angel and says, do what? Who? Me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not see my family tree? We're like the smallest tribe of anybody, and you're picking me? Really? Because jump down to verse 15. Look at verse 15. And this is his defense. And he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh. I'm glad somebody's wound up this morning. Anyway, and I am the least in my father's house. He says, I'm the smallest. I can't do it. You're looking at the wrong person, God. Look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Mennonites as one man. Now to kind of take on Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. Gideon gets his army and God says, you got too many. And he breaks them down twice, so he only has 300 men against 120,000 of another army. And God says, you can take them. And also, by the way, you're going to defeat them without any kind of basic training whatsoever. You're not going to have to lift a weapon. Trust me. And God gives Gideon the victory. And here's the reminder when I read something like this in, Ju in Judges chapter 6 and I go back to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and I see these two passages together, here's what I'm reminded about God. He does something great through something small. God always does something great through something small. Remember what the angel told Gideon, you're going to defeat this army like you're one man. Not like you're 300 you're one man. You're going to defeat them like one person. God says the same thing about this baby born in a manger. This baby is going to change the world. This baby is going to grow up and die for your sins. This baby is going to give you access back to me. And he's going to do all these great and wonderful things. Last week we learned that we know that God, that Jesus is that wonderful counselor, Peleo Hetz. He is Peleo Hetz in Hebrew, the wonderful counselor. 
mighty God, what we're looking at this morning, mighty God in Hebrew is El Gabur. I know it sounds funny, but that's how it says it. It's, it's two words, El Gabur. Now listen, I'm fixing to give you an English lesson in Hebrew, which is gonna be horrible because I was bad in English. But I want you to pay attention to what's happening with, with wordplay because the Hebrew language doesn't use words and letters like we do in the English. So let me give you some understanding here. That word El, that word El is short for Elohim. That's the name that we hear called with God. When we turn to Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Every time we see the word Elohim, it's talking about God the Father. But we take that E-L, the L, the L at the beginning. The L means mighty one. So it means mighty one. And before I get too far ahead, because I'm really going to make you all go crazy here. The L in the word is the noun. El is the noun. The gabur is the adjective that modifies the noun. If you understand that, you are smarter than I am. But stay with me, because you need to see this. So El means mighty one. That second word, gabur, it also means, you're going to love this, it means mighty as well. So in the scripture, when we read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it literally is saying he will be called the mighty, mighty one. That's what scripture is saying about Jesus, that he will be the mighty, mighty one. And that's who we're going to see. And for a rational person, this is hard to swallow. How is this baby going to be the mighty, mighty one? How is this baby going to change us? How can this baby be a mighty, mighty God? So let's have some fun with this for a second. Think about it this way. All through the Old Testament, we see prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that this Messiah would be the offspring of a woman. So let's take it from there. If you read scripture and study scripture, there are 12 prophecies that take place before Jesus. No, I'm sorry. There's 12 prophecies and 10 of them happen before Jesus is born. So think about that for a second. There are 12 ancient prophecies in scripture. 10 happen before he even gets in the world. So what are these prophecies? Scripture says this about the Messiah. He would be the offspring of a woman. He'd come from a virgin. He'd be the son of God, a descendant of Abraham from the line of Isaac, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jesse, from the house of David, and he would be from Bethlehem. That's before he's born. Then when he comes into the world, he'd be presented gifts. And when he came into the world, children would be killed because of him. Remember, if you know your scripture, remember Herod. He finds out there's a new king in town. And he does the same thing that the Egyptians did in Moses' day. Try to take out the competition. But God had a plan. So, so all right, buckle up. Put your seatbelts on because this is going to get really interesting. 
because we see prophecy being fulfilled and we wrestle with understanding prophecy. We wrestle with trying to grasp this. So, so far we've started with a Hebrew slash English lesson. Now I'm gonna try to give you a math lesson on prophecy. And for those who love numbers, Lord bless you and keep you. The possibility, the possibility of fulfilling eight prophecies in scripture is one times 10 to the 17th power or 100 quadrillion is how you say that word. 100 quadrillion is the possibility of of filling eight of these prophecies we read by anyone. So what does this look like? Imagine you are standing in the state of Texas and you have 100 quadrillion silver dollars and they are spread throughout the state of Texas. If you spread them throughout the state of Texas, they would stand two feet high. To give you some principle, two feet is about from the floor, from the bottom of my foot to my knee, that's two feet, give or take. Two feet deep. So this gentleman, and the man's name is Peter Stoner, and he wrote this book, and he says, the chances of this happening, so you take the state of Texas, you have this many silver dollars that cover the whole state, and oh, by the way, for those playing at home, the square miles of the state of Texas is 268,597 square miles. The whole state's covered with silver dollars two feet deep. He says, now you blindfold one person, you take one silver dollar, you mark an X, and you hide it somewhere in the mass of silver dollars. And you take that man who's blindfolded and say, okay, you got one shot to pick up a silver dollar and say, this is it. Now, how crazy does that sound? It sounds crazy when you start thinking and you start doing the math. 10 to the 17 power of of him finding that one silver dollar that's got an X on a state that is over 268,000 square miles big. Yet we read in scripture about a Messiah who not only fulfills 12 of those prophecies after he's born, he would go on to fulfill 300 more prophecies. This mighty God, this mighty God who would grow up that people would marvel, that skeptics would scoff at. How can this be the son of God? Who is this person think he is performing these miracles? Yet miracle after miracle outside the bounds of normal law in nature is this Messiah who's breaking the laws of what looks to be normal and pointing people back to the Father. We read in Scripture where Jesus healed people. We read in Scripture where their bodies were, were wrecked with disease or other issues, and God heals them. We see a time when Jesus gets word about his cousin who's been in prison and now he's been beheaded. And we know Jesus weeps at that. But now he is still doing the Father's business. We know Jesus is hurt when he learns John the Baptist has been killed, but he continues to go. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14, page 970 in the Pew Bible. In Matthew chapter 14, 
we have this beautiful picture of Jesus standing by the Sea of Galilee. And Scripture says there were 5,000 men there. But if you do the math and give every one of those men a wife and one child, it's probably closer to 15,000 people on the side of this hill. And it's getting late in the day. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey, we got to feed these people. And the disciples look at him, and if they spoke in clear, correct South Georgian, they'd have said, dude, you've lost your mind. We ain't got anything. Well, we got something. And this part always, and I'm getting off this so just a second. Has anybody else ever wondered at the thought that there are 15,000 people who have come to hear Jesus and only one kid had brought lunch? But what did I say earlier? God does something great with something small. And we read that in scripture. Look with me, jump down in verse, about halfway through 14, jump down to verse 19. And Jesus says, he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave, gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Verse 20. And they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Only God could pull this off. Because think about this. Five loaves and two fish. We're not talking about a loaf of bread like you buy at the store. We're talking a loaf that was probably about that big, if that. And the, and, the, and the fish, there's only one person in here who I know is a fan of this particular fish, but this fish was probably close to the size of a sardine. So Jesus takes five loaves that look like this and two fish that look like this and looks up to heaven and blesses it, feeds the multitude, and there are 12 baskets left of food. Only God can do that. Yet it's Jesus in the, God in the flesh and Jesus who is doing this. And the people are watching this. But if you read on in scripture, after this is done, about three o'clock, he sends the disciples on ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee. And as they're making their way across, this storm starts to develop. And Jesus finishes up his prayer session and he decides that he's going to walk on the water and meet them on the other side. Now, Jesus never had any intention of the disciples seeing him. Scripture said he's just going to go to the other side and show up and be there. But because God is God, and God has to get our attention in some things. Look what takes place a little bit further down. Because you get to verse 25, and they see, during the fourth watch, they see Jesus walking on the water, verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now for most people, they'd have been happy with that answer. But then there's Peter. Peter wants proof. Peter doesn't just want to take the Savior's word at his word. Because look what happens next in verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I would put a pause and say, be careful what you ask for. 
Verse 29, and he said, come. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. Don't you wish you could stop right here? Don't you wish you could finish, just stop the passage right here? Gee, Paul, Peter, I'll get him right eventually. Peter is walking on the water. He is walking towards Jesus on the water. And then everything changes because Peter is as guilty as you and I. We take our eyes off of him. And when you and I take our eyes off of Jesus, that's when things start going the wrong way. Peter, up to this point, he is walking on water with his Savior. And he's the only, uh, only person ever to do this, other than Jesus. Peter's the only person to get out of the boat, and he's walking on the water. But we read a continuing scripture, verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Look at verse 32, because it's just as important as the rest. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. When Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased. Church, this is powerful. In the span of a handful of verses, you've watched this child who is now a man feed 15,000. He has walked on water. He empowered a friend to walk on water, and he has calmed a storm. Big works come from small packages. That's how God works. 2,000 plus years ago, God sends this little package and he gives it to Mary with a message, handle with care. Watch over this baby because he is going to be a mighty, mighty one, a mighty, mighty God. This little baby was already mighty at birth and grew up to be even mightier, conquering the greatest fears you and I have effortlessly. So here's a question I want you to think about this morning. What forces are coming at you right now? What forces are knocking you and pushing you from side to side that are keeping your eyes off of Jesus this morning? What are the things that are pushing you to and from and causing you to be distracted? Is it a potential job change? Is it fear? Is it a temptation? Is it depression, self-doubt, discouragement? I think one of the reasons that we read in Scripture that God is so eager to pull and tell these people about the coming of the Messiah 700 years before the actual event was because he is eager for us to do something that Jesus' closest friends discovered he could do and did. Peter, the same Peter who looks at the water and says, prove it, prove that you're Jesus, prove that you. And Jesus says, come on. The same Peter who's walking on the water, the same Peter who takes his eyes off of Jesus, the same Peter who cries out to Jesus to save him, the same Peter who is told, oh, you have little faith. The same Peter would go on to write some powerful reminders for you and for me this morning. 
Take your Bibles one more time. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at with me in verses 6 and 7. Peter, remember, we love Peter because Peter would always speak first and think later. But we admire Peter because of his boldness. Listen, don't you wish you could be like Peter sometimes and just tell it like it is? Don't sugarcoat it. Just say it. That's Peter. But look what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He gives us this reminder. He gives us this encouragement as a follower of Jesus. He reminds us just how mighty, mighty God Jesus is. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes these words. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Two things I want you to think about. There are two things that you receive from God in this promise, in his personal. First thing he tells us to do, he says, humble yourself. You have to admit that you're not as mighty as you think you are. Newsflash for some of you this morning. You're not as mighty as you think you are. That means you have to humble yourself before a holy father. But then he says, cast your anxiety on him. Cast your cares. Tell him about the storms in your life. So I want to conclude our time doing something a little different this morning. I want everybody to close their Bibles, put them to the side, and everybody eyes on me for just a second. I want to show you what humbling yourself and casting your cares looks like. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hands and put them in your lap, palm side up. Just stick them in your lap, palm side up. This morning, your hands are representing what you're still holding on to. This morning, they represent what you're not letting, what you're not letting go of, what you're not casting on him. Jesus said, let me handle it. My yoke is easy. What is something that you're still holding on to this morning that you're not letting go of? What is something this morning you're afraid to let go of? Because you know he can handle it but for some strange reason, you think you still have to hold on to it. This morning, you have an opportunity to put your faith and trust into someone who is mighty, someone who loves you, someone who died for your sins, but it involves letting go of what's keeping you from, it, from, it, from it understanding and accepting that mighty, mighty God who wants to be part of your life. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, leave your hands open in your lap, and I want you just to talk to God for a moment. And whatever it is that you're holding on to, ask him to take it. Give it to him this morning. Let him deal with it, because he can handle it. Why? Because he is a mighty, mighty God. There is nothing too big are too small that God cannot handle.
There is nothing too big, too small that God doesn't want to take off and remove from your hands and handle himself. Father, this morning there are some things in our lives that we would rather try to handle by ourselves. But I thank you that you listen to us. Father, I thank you this morning that you are working in the hearts of individuals in helping them, in caring for them, helping them to release what it is they're holding on to. Father, I know in this room there are people who are being blown to and fro because of health issues. And that's coming against them, but we know you are a mighty, mighty God. Father, we have some in this church that the forces blowing against them are in their marriage, are in their personal life, Lord. We ask that you would take them away. Father, for some people, it's temptations, old habits. Father, for some, it is fear about their children, their grandchildren. It's concerns about loved ones. Father, it's financial worries. Father, if you can walk on the water and you can feed 5,000 and you can make Peter walk on the water, surely you can handle anything. So, Father, right now, remove the burdens that some people are dealing with this morning. And, Father, we pray these things in your son's name. Before I say amen, all eyes up here for a second, because we're not done. Scripture in Matthew says there were 12 men in the boat. Only one got out. You've just opened your hands and told God to take what it is that's holding you back. Here's my next question before I close our time. How many of you are still stuck in the boat? How many of you aren't willing to get out because of what you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen if you actually get out of the boat? I find it amazing that there are 12 disciples. One says, prove it, Jesus. And he gets out of the boat. Eleven stayed in. Are you bold like Peter and willing to get out of the boat? And here's what I mean by this this morning, church. Are you willing to get out of the boat and say yes to Jesus for salvation this morning? Are you willing to get out of the boat this morning saying, Jesus, I have walked so far from you, I need to come back. Do I need to get out of the boat this morning and say, God, I need to be a part of this church family? Whatever it is this morning, you've opened your hands and say, God, take it. I can't handle it anymore. I don't want it anymore. I don't need it. You take it. You have control of it. I am giving my life and my heart to you. I am turning my eyes towards you. So if I'm willing to turn my eyes to him, why am I not willing to get out of the boat? This morning, there are some of you that you've gotten the first part of this right. You are let go and let God handle it. But there are some this morning that are still stuck in the boat. You need to get out. Father, as we finish our time this morning, Father, I pray for those. Father, I pray for those this morning that may still be in the boat. That, Father, they haven't gotten out of that boat and received your grace and salvation for the sins that your son died for for them. Father, I pray for some this morning that are in the boat, Father, because they've walked away from you and they desire to come back. But, Father, I also pray for those who are in the boat this morning 
that they need to get out of the boat and become part of this fellowship. Father, whatever the case is this morning, we're fixing to sing this hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. But Father, how can I sing these words if I don't humble myself, if I don't cast my cares on you, and if I don't get out of the boat? Because your word tells us you do great things in small packages. And that baby we read about in Isaiah 9 is going to grow up and die for my sins. And for that, I am eternally grateful. And there are many in this room who would echo the same words. But this morning, I pray that you would work on all of us. Father, not for a behavior change, but for a heart transformation. That's what I pray for this morning. Father, may we all sing with boldness as we turn our eyes upon you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.